podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Konnichiwa! Watashi no namae nesun desu. Tsujo watashi to ishi sho ni iru no wa reido desu ga. Karewa sandaru o tsukada nakereba nanimasen deshita. That's all I got, y'all. So, uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> Here at The Fear of God, we explore the holy and the horrific, dissecting what scares us in order to find what saves us and potentially offend whole swaths of people in one fell swoop. Speaking to you right now, as I just mentioned, if you didn't pick up on it, is Nathan. Um, you know, I'll, I'll let you kind of Google translate what Reed was doing, but we can, I'm sure he'll tell us when we get back. Cause I guarantee he knows exactly what I just said. Um, while he's gone though, and until he gets back, if you have not done so, one of you lovely people out there just today left a review for which we are grateful. It was lovely. We'll post that very soon. Um, so if you've not done so, write a review, leave a rating. If you're not real confident in them writing skills, subscribe to the podcast. We'd love to know you're out there. Uh, do us a favor. We've got a brand new uh, shirt design, brand new merch design in the old merch shop. Thank you, Jacob Hunt, where you can get a shirt or a campaign button for Franken slash Stein 2020. That's very exciting. Um, so we got a whole lot going on and there. Hey, hey, buddy. Hey, Reed, you're here. Domo oh, arigato. <laughs> no, that's not right. <laughs> I, it's right. It's right. Mis, I mean, Mr. Was, Roboto? You know, I, oh, I know. I got it. I got it, Mr. You, Roboto. Well, yes. I did. I did. Doitashimashite, mm-hmm. um, you know. So What'd you call me? Res- I said, doitashimashite. That's my response to your <laughs> arigato. Like, oh. Um, Reed, we are... <laughs> Losing, we are shedding listeners right now. As <laughs> Listen, we okay, speak. so all right, so so much, so much for constant listener for the for the fifteen that are still with us. So um, Nathan actually did take some legitimized, legitimized, know, yeah, wait, wait, it was wait, wait, authentic. Wait. 
Japanese. It was in, authentic. In, in what was it? High school, college, high school. It was high school. High three school? years. Three years. Three years. Of Japanese. Yeah. And I would like to take a moment to thank Google Translate for mm. the for the translation, but I would like to thank my three years in high school for the pronunciation. For the ability. Uh, it has to, been. Yeah. It has been. I graduated in. Uh, the late 90s. Oh, so, oh boy. You know, that's been a long time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's really fun. What? One of the few things I was disheartened about in going to the college you and I shared. Yeah. Um, other than just the, the, the scandal that oh, <laughs> exited like, us out the yeah, door. Basically. If you remember. <laughs> right, right. Other than that. But going there was that they did not offer Japanese. And I remember mm. this really great moment uh, my first semester freshman year. because Because... Where we went actually had a decent international community, if you recall. I do remember, and, yeah. um And there were these two Japanese students outside of our dorm. And I, the the large, you know, not Japanese guy, oh. as I was passing them by, I said, excuse me, in Japanese. And they both lit up. And they were Aww. flabbergasted and flummoxed. Uh, and so then they yeah, just began was... to rattle off entire sentences to you that you were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. You whoa, know, whoa, whoa. That's, all, that's all I remember was just, you know. <laughs> That's that's really about it. It was just like what I love about. I feel that I, I'm wor- I'm worried we're tiptoeing up to just insensitivity, so we should just you know steer steer. I, but but yes, I did take three years of, of Dep- high school. Yeah. See, Japanese. I took three years of Spanish in high school, and I know like oh. hola and yeah, yeah, that one doesn't really get you any points though. It it doesn't it doesn't. I know you know trabajo. I work. Oh um, okay. So, uh, so, but yeah. you're here. Hey, do you know what do you, do you know what I said you were doing? Well, no, I don't because I didn't take three years of Japanese in high school. Well, so in your defense, I wouldn't have known how to say what I said that you were doing oh. with three years of Japanese in high school. Uh, no, I said you were making some. You were finishing making some sandals. Oh, I was making some sandals. That's yeah. wow! Yeah. How culturally sophisticated of me. well, it's also a, a direct. It is. It is. There's also a direct reference to the movie. It is. Unfortunately, you know, after you made your sandals, some some troubling things befell you. Sure, I wonder if listeners pick up on that—that that all of these little opening bits have something to do with the movie. You know, like uh, three years Are you in. For now. real? No, do you... of course I'm not for real. Oh. oh. <laughs> Way to take the bait, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> I took it. Like, are you for real? I'm what? swimming. <laughs> like, come on, Reed. We got smart listeners. I don't know. I'm, they're not all like me. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh man. Well, I. I think they're smart. That was a compliment to our listeners. Exactly. Well, you know what? I I do love our listeners. You know what else I love? What? I love the seventies. <laughs> I do, I do. You need you need like um like TV guideposts. You uh-huh. need when you're in when you're introing the out of the seventies segments this and next week. Yeah, because uh, then the following week is when it starts to to lay in some BGs. Okay, oh, to... I will do that. Dude, please, please, I do have. It. But see, you're specifically sure you probably do. referencing sure you like like the disco era BGs and not like the, you know what? the what, soulful R and B. Why are you gonna assume that I'm? You know, I'm just targeting a very specific era of Bee Gees. I well, just, do you know Bee Gees from the R&B? I don't. Era? I just, they're amazing. I, I, no, I don't. But, but you assumed that I naturally wouldn't. Um, and well, I don't like, yeah. Actually, most of my fun Bee Gees connotations these days has to do with Justin Timberlake and uh, Jimmy Fallon on SNL. Have you ever watched those? No. That's... Oh, it is hysterical. Oh, I'll you have to check that out. You should watch the Justin Timberlake, Jimmy Fallon, Bee Gees talk shows that they did. Really? Okay. It's hysterical. All right. Yes, All right. absolutely. I'll tell you, I'm a, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm, I am actively a Bee Gees fan. Like I, I mean, uh, you know, like th- there are so few things you could say the sentence, I don't know if you knew this about me, and whatever <laughs> followed would not be a surprise. You know, just... <laughs> 
No, like I love I love the Bee Gees, I, man. Like, I believe you. You great. don't have to like you know. I'm not gonna like. <laughs> stay alive, stay alive. I, was say, I'm not, I wasn't gonna like test your credentials here. <laughs> I believe uh, you. Oh, it's so great. Um, but no, sincerely, I do love the 70s. And not only do I love the 70s, I love that uh, we are getting ready to count down the listener-voted top 50 favorite horror films from the 1970s. So we have one more week next week of hashtag speaking in tongues phase one. Stay tuned. But uh, we have one more week of that. And then in October, as has been our recent tradition, we will be counting down your favorite horror films from the 1970s with some episodes from at least a couple of episodes from your top 10. But uh, as has not been the case with prior decades when we've done this, uh, we actually have already covered quite a bit of the iconic horror films from the 70s. So uh, your votes as they are coming in, it is looking like, unless there's some dramatic shifts in the next couple of weeks, it's looking like uh, we are going to have already covered most of your top 10. But there are some great films still left to cover, and we are going to be covering them in the month of October. So you have one more week, ladies and gentlemen. One more week. Next week, we'll close the voting on hashtag I love the 70s. So check out Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Find the survey. Cast your votes if you have not already. Time is running out. We have the list kind of already tallied, but you still have time to make your impact. So vote for hashtag I love the 70s, and we will see you in October. I'm very excited about that. Very, very excited. That is very exciting, Reed. I'm now I'm just jazzed to hear the Bee Gees back you up when oh, this finally man. hits the I air. Said, that is know? that is happening every that is happening every single time. Like that is. I would I'm, actually I'm be- so I would excited. actually believe I would actually believe you you are clearly so excited about this possibility that I would actually believe that between now and when this airs, you would record yourself singing a Bee Gees song to lay in over. Oh uh, <laughs> no! You just did it! You just did it! <laughs> Wow! Somebody, somebody had a good day today. I can't can't hit those notes though, man. Like those, those guys are legit. Like they've got some pipes. Gosh, I wish, I wish you, you, you need to between now and our next episode watch the uh, Fallon Timberlake SNL bit. Okay, okay, yeah, I'll I'll Um, do that. But in the meantime, we have a lot to get to. So um, we do have a lot to get to. I did want to piggyback on that. We referenced this a couple times. We are getting into the thick. Uh, This will, this will air latter part of September. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's still slightly early, especially if you are of uh, Canadian descent. Um, but, you know, comfort in the creepy. Let's start seeing it. Mm. I, I've been I've been trying to get folks posting. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think the I've only one it. I've got so far is Vera's mug. She's got an yeah. Adams Family mug. So yeah. thank you, Vera, for posting that. Um, I'm sure they will start pouring in and we'll start enjoying oh, that. I'm but so um, You know what's amazing, Reed? What? Did you... I think I sent you a video today, but I don't know if you watched it yet. That's okay. Um, <laughs> our our almost three year old has just uh, been introduced to the Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, does she like it? Is um, yeah. I mean, she she watches it. She's not scared of it. She loves oh, okay. Jack. She will she will she will gutturally declare, "I Jack the Pumpkin King." It's really Ooh, that's awesome, amazing. That's yeah, awesome. and and when you kind of like with other characters catchphrases, when you ask her, "What does Jack say?" She says. What's this? It's really amazing. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. It's really amazing. That's adorable yes. and wonderful. So everyone post your pictures, Comfort in the Creepy, tag us, and we will repost them. Um, we got a lot to get to, Reed. There's, uh, there's, there's a, a whole, lot. There's a whole lot. And... <clears throat> 
if you don't mind, I think we should start with a journey back to the small German mountain town, forest town? At what point does a topography determine what type of town it is? Of Winden in Germany, a festering wound, as its denizens tend to call it. Today we'll be discussing episodes 7 and 8 of season 1, that of Crossroads, and As You Sow, So Shall You Reap, which finds the plot continuing to thicken and boil over into whole new vistas of chronological chaos. Today, on TV Guideposts. Do you like that? Oh, it was it was beautiful. Chronological chaos. That's pretty good, huh? That's, I, I just came up with that. That was moment. really yes. It was very very impressive. I'm proud of you. Okay, thank you. So yeah, here so we are, man. These... Um, so Reed, there's a lot, dude. dude these two episodes. You did you? I, what's really funny? See, I can I'm tripping over my words right now. Like, uh, you know, I, I feel like uh, Ulrich in 1953. Speaking of Ulrich in 1953, Ooh. I I honestly kind of forgot that happened. Like, if you go back and listen really? to the er- okay. the early, I mean, it didn't surprise me that it happened. But as you and I have been discussing the series, I just wasn't remembering that that was forthcoming. But even that's getting ahead of ourselves a little I bit. Gotcha. So yeah. episode seven is Crossroads. Man. Give me, give me some, give me some thoughts here. What's, what's so, happening here? So, so here's one thing about it. So most of, we, we are listeners. If you've not picked up on this, or if you've not heard about this, we are covering, fully covering, thematics and and uh, some of the big broad ideas that this TV series deals with in next week's full coverage. So a lot of my notes basically revolve around, you know, just still plot connections, uh, little revelations. Uh, so the thing that I liked about episode seven, episode seven opened right away with that boy. Um, in the bunker, mm. uh, which we later learn is Helge Doppler, um, and he is episode seven starts there. Yes, that is the opening of episode Crossroads, mm. the opening shot right, of right, that. Right. Um, and so, you know, we see that he. Uh, I, I wrote this is my exact note. I wrote he he apparently is an original victim of the time traveling phenomenon, uh, but I think uh, he is also the one working at the power plant as an adult. And then I later found out, like, oh, no, he is Charlotte's father-in-law, the father of Peter, the psychiatrist, and he is old man TikTok. And so all of that right. sort yeah. of clicked Boom. together in Crossroads. So like I was a, like, like oh. a time device. Yeah. Just, just oh. whirring and spinning, such as Reed's brain watching, <laughs> or any, any of our brains watching Dark Season 1. So, um, so obviously that was a pretty major revelation. Um, now, uh, so uh, what's interesting about this is they start to kind of – They've been dancing around with, yes, we're dealing with time travel, so knowing that at this stage in the series that that's the conceit of the show. So now they're starting to kind of play around with uh, certain things causing certain other things and uh, certain things like preventing certain other things from happening. So like my very next note is is the trench coat man coming in and uh, stopping Jonas yeah. from taking Mikkel back. Uh, Mikhail, Mikkel. Um, Did you just say Nickelback? He's done, yeah, he, oh, taking Mikkel back. That should, that should have been a whole side story, is somebody <laughs> stopping that from happening. <laughs> He's like, I have, this, I have this CD, but I have no way to play it. Oh, my gosh. It, oh, I it meant, unravels oh, my, the fabric. My, my of, version of that story was much darker than what you just said. But <laughs> <laughs> it, had, it had more in common with Ulrich and young Helga than with a CD. Um, but <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. 
Um, but I liked his line that he says, uh, which comes up again in the show, but uh, I, I do love just the phrasing of it. Every decision for something is a decision yes. against something else, which uh, we'll unpack probably more when we discuss it thematically. But um, yeah, that's a that was a pretty great line that I wrote down. I am still convinced, personally speaking, that the trench coat man... Uh, will turn out to be, I called it last week, I am pretty convinced that Trenchcoat Man is going to turn out to be Jonas and that he will stop, that he was stopping himself from taking uh, Mikkel. Mik- now I can't hear it otherwise. Now Mikkel, I, Mikkel. Mikkel, that will help because I keep saying Mikkel. Yes. Say Mikkel. Yeah. Mikkel. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> Nobody listens I have to come to take. Back. I have come to take Mikkel back. I've come to take Mikkel back to a Nickelback concert. <laughs> I don't even know what's happening nope, right now. No, nope, I don't either. I don't um, either. But I like that one. Yes, like but, but see, what's what's really fun about this this pair of episodes is, I, if you'll recall, during, um, maybe during the Girl Who Walks episode, I alluded to neglecting to recall who TikTok Man was. Mm. Oh yes, like I, yes. That yes. was that wasn't me trying to throw you off the scent. In the moment, I just wasn't because because so much of that mythology puzzle piece gets laid in this episode. Sure, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We spend more time uh, with Helga in this episode than I think we did in in any of the because we had yet to see his 1953 iteration. We had not. Uh, well, because like, we hadn't been to 1953. Right, that's what I'm saying. Right. So, like, because of that, there's so much that like. Because I can't even no. We hadn't seen the we hadn't seen the boy version of him either. Even though. Uh, like we don't know enough about that bunker or, or like that room where he's housed with that weird chair. Like we don't know enough about that to really discern too much at this point. Um, but yeah, we just we really had only seen the old man version of him. So yeah, this you're right. All of all of that mythology surrounding well, him and his actions. You actually, him. if if you were to rewatch this season, you do see eighty six Helga a couple of times. Early. Really? Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, there's maybe in episode two, uh, two or three, um, the first time you meet 86 Claudia, mm-hmm. um, she is pulling up to the power plant and Helga greets her and gives, wow. her, a, a, gives her the gift, maybe oh. of the book, gives oh, her some wow. sort of gift. And that's 86 Helga. Yeah. Dang. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Um, a, a great little bit, a little touch that this show is super good at that I just caught this particular viewing of Seven is there's a moment, you know, when Jonas in 86 is walking the road to the hospital looking for Inez. Right, yeah. It's raining and it cuts. I don't remember exactly who's first in this sequence, but there's a pair of scenes with Charlotte in 19 investigating at the power plant immediately followed by Jonas and it's raining in both scenes. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. yeah I would have yeah. to go back like, and rewatch it to pick up on that, but that's cool. Yeah. Um, I love when 86 Egon asks, or, uh, Tiedemann, you know, the, the right, 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 right. Uh, asks what's that about his earbuds? Oh yes. And he's like, those aren't earphones. <laughs> that was so Which great. Is just clicking with me now is a great seed for what happens next episode. Uh, oh, in terms of, yeah, that's right. In terms of the, Techno chrono chaos. Ooh, mm-hmm. Ooh okay. All Talking right. about. <laughs> um, dude, 
I I did rewatch well I skimmed seven and eight before our recording when Ulrich in, in two thousand nineteen, when Ulrich is in the hospital room confronting Helga because right. he has discovered the the notes of T- 86 Tiedemann about Helga right, going by right. a different road. Mm-hmm. He goes to confront him and old man Helga noting Ulrich says, I know you. And it's like, Oh, oh, my God. oh yeah, that's yeah, right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Because he's, Oh, because it, but it's a real quick throwaway phrase. Cause immediately it goes into, I can change the past and the future. And, and as a viewer, you get hung up on that, not realizing they just told you a major sort of note. Which we will find, we'll talk about it this episode because that's in yeah. oh, episode yeah. eight. Oh my gosh, that's crazy! Yeah. Oh, that's um, I, I, didn't, I didn't catch that at that. Here's time, I here's another it. great a great little note. Um, I love that you're enjoying the show. Um, <laughs> Eighty six Helga eats a Raider candy bar. Yes, I, right? I picked up on that because that's that rapper. Okay. That yeah, they had who finds who 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 finds it? Who finds the rapper in 19? Oh, gosh. Let me remember that. Because I saw that that one time. Uh, uh, I forget who found I forget who found the rapper. It's a it's a kid. Okay. Uh, it is uh, Elizabeth the Deaf Girl. Now, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Take note of the fact that she doesn't get taken, but the, the young man, the little boy in that episode does, remember? Right, right. Why? Why this only clicked with me watching this this time? Why does Elizabeth not get taken? I don't know. I'm not putting it together. Because Helga is her grandfather. So he wouldn't have. So he would not right. have kept. Oh, right. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course. And so whatever. Wow. Because it. I do think there's a little confusion. I mean, ultimately, I will be interested to see how consistent this show is capable of being over sure. the long haul. Sure. But there are things like okay. You know, is Helga, is old man Helga just senile? How long has he been senile? Why would he have not recognized Ulrich previously? Sure. Uh, because sure. they are clearly playing the lost whatever happened happened card. Like this is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, this this is time is immutable mm-hmm. um, from that standpoint. Before we move to seven, any any other? I mean, I don't want to move to eight yet because I've got a couple other sevens, but I want to pivot to you. Uh, well, I only just uh, two two quick loves, and then this ends my notes on Crossroads. So you can finish this off and take us into seven. So I love the moment in 1986 when Katarina is defending Ulrich against yeah. the the rape charge, and then it's immediately followed by the scene where she confronts him in 2019 oh, about yeah. his affair that is so that is the reason it is such a powerful and potent moment is because i i forget i forget what the exact line is but the transitional line is something like he would never hurt me he would never do that to me and yeah. so you go from her defending him so uh strongly to then this moment where she is confronting him about the affair that he has had. And it's again, it's it's powerful storytelling. That's a really, really strong moment. Likewise, but in a different vein, I love the moment where Jonas is watching Mikkel and Hannah in 1986 meet each other and speak with each mm-hmm. other. And the mm-hmm. weight of the decision that he has to make, like, do I intervene? Do I step in? And so that that moment is is pretty powerful. So those those are just some things that I I really loved that took place in this episode about the they really feel like and again most of this will be probably unpacked in our main episode but really feels like they are wrestling with sort of the weight of consequence of certain decisions like this notion of if you could change things would you and again that line that is going to come up again every decision for something is a decision against something else like that yeah that's um 
that's pretty powerful stuff. So that's all I had for seven. One just pure technical note on seven is I've got to get me one of those Jonas flashlights that you just kind of rub your hand. Oh, aren't they cool? Oh my uh, gosh. That's, that's great. pretty awesome. Um, I get my last note is just, you know, the, the episode seven finishing with Noah and the, but in the bunker, um, writing, do you notice yeah. his, his back tattoo is the same art that's hanging in the hospital that Michael finds did. in 86. Um, yeah. and so what was funny is I noticed it, but did not, like, I, I don't have any sort of theories or ideas about exactly what that means or anything, oh, but I, yeah. but I, yeah, but I did take note of it. I was like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. All right. Let's get into episode eight. As you sow, so shall mm. you reap, dude. Seven actually was a bit of a sleeper this time around. Like it was like, okay, cool. You know, mm, okay. good, some good, some good stuff. This one just, oh my gosh. One, because again, I forgot. Um, it, it didn't shock me because I'd seen it, but I forgot about the whole thread of 1953. Like talk sure, to me a little sure. bit about your experience of that. Was, were you kind of bowled over by that? Was it just like, oh, okay, now we're doing this. N- not totally. Uh, so what was interesting though is, uh, when, and this happens, I forget how early in the episode, but it happens pretty early. So Ulrich is going through the cave, and he's finding the tunnel, he finds the door, he opens the door, he's coming to the same crossroads that we saw Jonas come to. And then I did take note, I was like, okay, Jonas went right, Ulrich went left. Yeah. And so I intuited, like, okay, Ulrich's going to go back to 1953. And so um, I just, I, I thought that was really cool. It is interesting how they've, created because the symbol on the the door that leads to these sort of disparate time tunnels if you want to call it that the door has that that triad image i forget exactly what they venn diagram looking yes exactly um uh but i I thought that was really that's really interesting and I, i i forget if it is in this episode but where the scientist, if I'm saying his name correctly, the H.G. Tanhouse is yeah, yeah. postulating about like, yeah, it's not just two directions. It's not just up or down. It's also, you know, there's also a, a, a center. There's a there's a third sort of element to things. And I just love that concept, the concept of this triune sort of conceptualization of time and space is really uh, is really fascinating to me. And I love some of the scientific ideas that they're playing with. Um, mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, uh, listeners may not realize that I've watched further. Well, they probably do. I've watched further in the show than I'm able to speak about right now. If you've only listened or if you've only watched up to episode eight, there's some very fascinating things in the next couple of episodes about uh, just dealing with that weight of time and the impact of time. Uh, and I feel like it was, uh, yeah, it's, it's just wrestling with some really interesting ideas here. Ooh, this is a big one. Um, yeah, there's something happens in this episode that I was like, Oh God. And like, I don't know if that's what you, I well, don't know. It's, yeah, well, it's funny. Cause I actually, some of the, my most favorite aspects are actually in nine. It's just that eight sets them up and I'm just now discovering that. But oh, I gotcha. Um, I gotcha. Um, I, I lovingly refer to as to 10 house as the tinkerer. Cause that's a Marvel villain. Ooh. Okay. Um, I do love that 53 Helga has, has four layers on man. They, these folks know how to, <laughs> they dress. He's got a jacket, a sweater, a shirt and undershirt. Sure. His mom's, su- his mom's super weird, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, there's so much, I don't know if it was this one or nine. I think it was, I think it was nine, but eight definitely introduces this. There's a real balancing act in this last couple episodes where of plot 
or rather of story and idea. I mean, mm. they start to kind of Im- re- rebound off each other a little bit because after a while you're like, ah, ah, my brain is spinning. Um, <laughs> I'm going to throw this final note here or a note from the end of the episode and then we can fill in as desired. But I love that young tinkerer in 53 finds Ulrich's abandoned coat that also holds his phone. And I just love that. Like, you know, Ulrich is the man. I already thought he was a man. I mean, he's got some troublesome, you know, side life, but, um, and you know, some, some anger issues. Um, but (laughs) you know, maybe he's not the man at all. Um, I'm uh, talking myself out of affection. Yeah. 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 I have changed my mind. (laughs) This is in real time. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I love that cozy and stylish. Like he created it. He went back in time to 1953. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we get advanced technology and, you know, stylish outerwear. Cozy um, and stylish. One little time travel note. It's true. Um, it's true. You meet a lot of folks in this episode. You do. Like, so many that I can't even, I didn't write them all down, but, like, I can't even keep the, because we're meeting for the uh, first time, really, all of the 19, well, not, all of them, because we met some of them in the last episode, but uh, most of the 1953 sort of cast of characters just continue to get fleshed out, and so yeah, it's and and uh, I believe it's in the next episode where they do the little like they show every iteration mm, of the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but we'll we'll get there when, the, when we talk about the big one. But uh, yeah, there's just you said I think in the very first discussion we had about it how m- expansive the cast yeah. of characters was and yeah that's no joke because no. it's not just that we ha- we have the characters we have but we have for most of them three versions of those yep. characters and it's yeah it's pretty crazy well in this one okay there are some great moments i love i love ulrich's continued rolling bafflement at what he has fallen the 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 you know kind of rabbit hole he's fallen down right when right. when he meets uh, the kid version of his dad and grandmother Agnes. Oh wrote. yeah, oh yeah. I love. Then you may not have caught this, but when Ulrich finds his way to Ten House's shop because he has the book, uh huh. In walks two little girls. Right, right. Well, those little girls are Inez, the nurse. Right, and I did catch that. Jana, his mom, and. Oh, yes. Re- yes remember yes, the little yes, girl? Yeah. She gets freaked out because he whispers the word mama at her. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just crazy stuff. Oh, old Lady Tiedemann, like some Lady Agnes, you know, a little bit of progressive, a <laughs> little bit of forbidden love in 1953 Germany. True that. True that. Um, any, any other notes for you on, on I I on literally eight? I literally have one note on on eight uh, oh, well, that, right. I, that I haven't already uh, oh, talked okay. about. And that is... I mean, it's it's the big one. It's the big reveal. It's the big crazy. Like, you keep talking about, and I'm not arguing with you here, but you keep talking about, like, Ulrich is a great character, but uh, the generalized goodwill and rooting for him that I had mm, yeah, yeah, completely yeah, yeah. falls out the bottom with sure. this. Um, as a crafted character, he's still pretty effective, and he's still great. But for me, uh, when you decide... For right. whatever reason, as he does in this episode, that in order to stop these atrocities, I have to uh, beat this little boy to death with a rock. 
that's where now let me ask yeah. let me ask you this are you are you saying because you just said for whatever reason like do you think the show poorly motivates that choice i don't think it poorly motivates the choice i think he jumps to that conclusion rather quickly so in other words maybe i do think he poorly mo- that it poorly motivates it because here's what i think i understand how somebody who is so definitively convinced that that is what has happened would do a thing like that that doesn't require a lot of like getting my brain around a character doing that but i did lose traction on why is ulrich so convinced that it's helga that is the source of all this and so like he's rep- so so the show asks me to conclude that he has not only acclimated to the time travel phenomena but also his detective brain has pieced together that it is Helga that is responsible for all of it. Now we, that's, that's what's crazy about it is that we know, I mean, not, I don't remember if we know it definitively at this point, but that that actually Helga is responsible for it. That's what's kind of wild about it. Not, not solely, he's not exclusively responsible for it, but um, he, he is the one actually like taking these, taking these kids. And so it's just, it, it, it just was a bit of a stretch to me that Ulrich figured it out um, because I didn't see that substance in his puzzle pieces. Um, so I was like, but, and to make a decision like you're going to. Oh, I get it. I understand. Yeah. And, and in fact, see what's interesting about that is I find that an incredibly compelling scene because mm. partly it's just, it's just fantastically crafted. I mean, sure, there's extreme sure. tension in that scene. Oh gosh. Yeah, um, it's and the, the, the score, his, I think even little Helga says, um, you look tired or something like that. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't, uh, I wouldn't push hard that I, you know, it were like against your notion of you're not quite sure you're convinced that the show did the work to get him his choice to that point. I gotcha. But I can, I can sort of see the desperation for resolution regarding Mikkel yeah. His investigate yeah. his investigation in nineteen, yielding or, or revealing blind spots in Tiedemann's original investigation, right. leading him right. to TikTok Helga, leading him to follow him. Uh, you know, there's a lot that I could see clicking into place because clearly on behavior, uh, adult uh, old man Helga going on the lamb is noteworthy to 19 Ulrich. That's true. Now, and, and so I, I think to him, true. it's probably the case of the running is, is what convince what does a lot to convince him. And then the notion of the realization that Mads's body is in 19, mm-hmm. the compre the comprehension of what he's experienced by going into 53, right? The body, right. the bodies that are in the nuclear plant. I, I don't know. I, I could, I can sort of see that it doesn't, take a ton to push him over the edge and to me what's fascinating about that scene now i wouldn't push hard against this maybe being a flimsy notion but it's what it's a thing that i found interesting is to me what's cool about the show is like you said it's asking moral based questions around its characters interactions and and to me him sitting there he asks little Helga about the bird. Did you kill it? And I don't know know if you remember this, 
Helga says no, but then he says they're beautiful when they're dead. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I do remember. And I I just think uh, to me, there's this. I'm going to make a big leap here, but go with me. This notion of if you could go back in time and kill Hitler, would you do it? That's oh, a very sure. yeah, extreme of version yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. But that to me is what this is trying to do is like if you be- became convinced and or were convinced and or were absolutely right that the person as a child you were staring at commits heinous wrong in the future, how would you respond? Now add to that, add a layer to that, that the person who does heinous wrong took and possibly killed your own child. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's a really fascinating yeah. sort of. Yeah. Well, and you have in this in this moment reminded me of something that my conclusion was was forgetting. And that is that he does question Helga's being in the woods when Mikhail disappears. Um, He questions that before he ever goes back into time. So uh, maybe I was being a bit unfair to the show. Like, I think maybe. And again, this is your second time through. Right. Right. So perhaps if I, you know watch this through a second time, I will pick up on little breadcrumbs that they'd lay across the way that it maybe at the moment I didn't have any context for and didn't know like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. This is something that further substantiates later his decision to do that. E- even still, the the scene is pretty brutal. Like oh, he's, oh my gosh. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, for, for listeners who haven't watched this and are still are still uh, listening to this conversation, basically Ulrich... In the dark? <laughs> Ulrich concludes that Helga, who is the old man in 2019 and the power plant worker in 1986, he is convinced that the boy, the young boy version of him in 1953 uh, needs to be done away with. And so he he attempts to kill him in a rather brutal scene just with what he has at his disposal which is a sharp rock um well and think too like from a pure character trajectory standpoint you identified this scene uh 10 minutes ago now prior to Ulrich in 2019 going to confront Helga in the hospital is when he and Katharina finally fall apart right so like right he's he's kind of lost it he's he doesn't have anything left yeah. Um, he, he's now chronologically displaced, which he has no clue what the ramifications of that are. Sure. I'm, sure. I'm, I'm here, you know, you know, here is water. Can we be baptized? Here is child <laughs> killer. Um, you know, let's do the deed. But anyway, yeah, yeah I love that scene. So uh, before we so, leave it, yeah. just to yep. connect the dots. So we were mentioning it earlier and didn't, didn't talk about it at that point. But so that substantiates when Helga, old man, Helga sees Ulrich and uh, you pointed this out earlier and says, I know you. It's he's staring into right. the face of the man who had tried to kill him yeah. as a little boy. Um and it yeah. is that's pretty that is pretty sharp when you think about it from a plotting standpoint, when you sure. think about it from a storytelling standpoint. That's pretty sharp. Um and uh and I uh I like it. So uh It is it is interesting to me. I feel like the show casually overlooks and I'm ultimately kind of okay with it because I don't care that deeply. But the show is so intentional about the interconnectedness of the generations that a character like Helga, who we see in three timelines, we, we never meet a wife or ex-wife yet. Right. He has the son, Peter. I don't know. It's just kind of like, uh, okay. And he's also sort of <laughs> right. kind of simple and senile the whole series. And so I don't know. It just sure. Kind of sure. No, I understand. I understand. Out to me. Um, so yeah, that was, that was all I had. We'll be covering, unless you had something, uh, more you wanted to say about either of these episodes next week, 
we will be looking not only at episodes 9 and 10, the penultimate and ultimate episodes of season 1, uh, but they will we'll be devoting the remainder of the episode to the thematics, the ideas that it's sort of playing with, and uh, and sort of close that the chapter not only on speaking in tongues, but on season 1 of Dark. Do you want to take us out, or do you want me to do the honors? <clears throat> this has been another installment of TV Guideposts. We now leave Ulrich in 1953, potentially a wanted man, potentially a murderer, of a child no less. But let's be honest, if you could go back and the lead singer of Nickelback were in front of you as a child, what might you do? <laughs> Stay tuned till next week on TV Guideposts when, as Reed just mentioned, we will be discussing episodes 9 and 10 and diving deep down the Einstein-Rosen Bridge of theme. Oh, man. That's, Dude, that's pretty amazing. I'm so thrilled you're enjoying the show. I am. I am. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, you know land the plane uh, next week, and I'll substantiate some more of my broader thoughts. But you know what's really funny is there's, uh, there's something that I've been meaning to ask you uh, that I, I forgot to ask you, or I probably should have asked you. Oh, earlier. yeah, please. Is oh, it like dark-related or, or like German, no. Germany? No, related? it's not. It's not quite dark time travel. Or, no, not time quite travel? dark or, or no? German related. No, it's uh, it's not quite that. It's um, well, I'll just uh, I'll just get right to it. It's uh, please. Well, you can tell me what you're watching now, what you're reading, and what you're listening to. <laughs> I can't even go any further. I can't even go any further because because here's the thing. Yeah. What you watching? What you watching? So, in real time. At the moment, it's really funny because at the moment that I busted into that, my lovely wife walked into the room ah. and, and I, I got I got stage fright. Ah. Wow, <laughs> so, it's true. Wow. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, uh, but yeah, so uh, so Mr. Rouse, what are you uh, watching, reading, or listening to? Well, it's one thing, okay. but it's representative. Um, and I'm gonna get real nerdy on you, Riri. Oh, so, okay. So, you know, you and I off and on um, the show reference comics and comic reading. And, right. you know, I don't know, a month ago I referenced Immor uh, Immortal Hulk by Al Ewing, which is a fantastic book. And if you're into comics and or the Hulk at all, you would really enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, well, brother, I don't know that it'll mean anything to you, but the X-Men are back. Oh, um, yeah? Really? So, you I, again... Bear with me. Um, I promise not to go quite in long, quite on long, but it'll, it'll take <laughs> me a second. Um, you may or may not know this. Uh, you read, not you, constant listener. The constant listener might as well. But so when Disney bought Marvel, you know, five years ago yeah. or whenever that was, um, you know, 20th Century Fox owned the X Men. Sony owned Spider Man. Ultimately, they worked out the share deal with Spider Man. Rest in peace, share deal with Spider Man. Hmm. Um, but. X-Men remained owned by 20th Century Fox until six months ago when Disney bought almost everything Fox owned except ESPN and Fox News. So in that interim time, Disney, even though Marvel continued to publish X-Men books, there was a common perception that wasn't totally untrue that Disney was kind of starving the, the X-Men brand. Really? Like, oh, yeah. If you observe... Like things like merchandise, there's limited to no merchandise associated with X-Men 
related material and or movies since they've been since Disney has bought Marvel. Interesting. Um, and, I mean, and in, and yeah, in fact, you also that. probably wouldn't know this, but the character Miss Marvel, Kamala Khan, right, um, right. who is an amazing character, and everyone should read that as well. But um, she is one of the Inhumans, which you may or may not know was a terribly poorly received sort of straight to TV movie that they oh. that Disney initially pitched as what would be a feature film when they did their massive, you know, kind of press conference five years ago or whenever. Well. Okay. Disney slash Marvel was by common perception muting the X-Men and, and supplanting them with the Inhumans uh, in publishing. There was a major push of the Inhumans about four or five years ago. This is where Kamala became, uh, got originated. Okay. Um, but, but it failed miserably. No one really took to the Inhumans. They, they flooded the publishing line with a bunch of characters nobody cared about or was familiar with. There were all these new dumb ones. And everybody was kind of like, I want my X-Men. And in the meantime, sure. they've been producing fair X-Men books, you know, if you are a fan of it. And I'm still reading Marvel Unlimited. That's why I kind of keep up. Well, when Disney bought, made the Fox merger earlier this year. Right. There's just been this common, like, when are they going to do, when are, when are the X-Men going to be prominent again? Because this is getting so nerdy. But <laughs> late 90s, the reason... Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor became the household names they were is because they weren't worth anything in the late 90s mm -hmm. as properties. Okay. They, when, yeah. So in the late 90s, Marvel went, or maybe the mid-90s, Marvel, the publishing line, went bankrupt, sold their IP, the movie rights. That's why Sony owned Spider-Man. That's why Fox owned X-Men. Nobody gotcha. wanted gotcha. what would we know now as the core Avengers. Okay. So yeah. they stayed in-house. Thus, when Marvel Studios started producing movies... Hey, we've got these characters nobody has cared about. Thus, now we have Avengers Endgame, and we all love, know and love the Avengers <laughs> worldwide. Sure, right. But um, the Disney thing happened. X Men got muted because X Men in the late '90s and early 2000s were just gangbusters, and the '80s. Sure, but oh, sure. Um, about five years ago, six years ago, I think I referenced it to you over time. The writer Jonathan Hickman, um, mm -hmm. whose name is becoming legend in the halls of X uh, Marvel fans. Um, he had a lengthy run on Fantastic Four, uh, which is really solid. Uh, then he pivoted that into a dual title run on Avengers and New Avengers. That led into Secret Wars, which for this 30-year comic reader at this point is maybe one of my favorite top five comic stories of all time is Secret Wars nice. with the long, the long tail of Hickman's run. Well, Marvel has been hyping for months now that Hickman was taking over the X-Men. The X-Men have just kind of languished as far as publishing goes, as far as compelling storytelling goes. Sure. You know, they, they've continued to publish stuff, but it's all just been kind of just haphazard. And, you know, you can kind of read between the lines. They, they were barely making it work. Well, after like three years of not buying any current day comics because I have Marvel Unlimited. Sure. I sure. was intentional about trying to resist buying the Hickman X-Men and... For any listeners who might be interested, and for you who might be interested, it's House of X and Powers of X. It's a tandem. It's six issues of one, six issues of the other. They bleed back and forth. It's effectively twelve a 12-issue story. And, like, right now, there are about six issues, six or seven issues into the 12-issue story. 
those six issues as a pure marker of how much people are lapping this up. Those six issues I just saw sell on eBay for like 90 bucks, which oh, is wow. insane for where the X-Men have been historically. Sure. Um, sure. But he is radically tweaking, refining, re-mythologizing the X-Men as a property. And dude, it's amazing. Like yeah. I, I personally cut my teeth on the X-Men when I was a wee nerd and sure. I was, well, let's rephrase that. I was never wee, but you know, when I was <laughs> a, a young, a young nerd, uh, yeah. the X, the X-Men was my go-to. I'd kind of lost a bit of that love over the years. Um, but man, it is compelling. It is fascinating. It's amazing. It, think about dark and what your brain does watching dark and how the, the, the clear machinations, the clear intentional plotting, it's that kind of thing. Sure. But with the X-Men, it's across timelines, just like Dark is. Anyway, if if you're a comic fan, if you're even mildly interested in this stuff, I guarantee you. You know how last week you said, I'm going to stake my claim right here that uh, I think Trenchcoat Man in the future is Jonas uh, now? Right, right, right. I'm saying right now, what Hickman is doing in the X-Men is what is going to be used for the template when they start getting introduced and like like MCU and stuff. I mean, it's just, it's that, it's that level of rebranding. It's, it's fantastic. It's fascinating. Uh, if you have mild interest in nerdy things, cause that was clearly quite nerdy. (laughs) Um, it is very worth your checking out. Jonathan Hickman's house of X and powers of X. Great stuff. Awesome. Awesome. That's very exciting. Um, are you just? I feel like you're just saying that. You're just I'm saying, not. No. I mean, okay. I have never. It's okay. Been... I know that was so, a real deep. So, dive. so here's the deal. I don't really care about any of that. But I. Oh, wow. <laughs> just, oh, wow. Oh wow. You are not taking any of my bait tonight. So, well, I lost. Okay. I lost you on the video feed, so I can't tell when you. I can't see your sarcastic face. <laughs> you can't. I can't see your sarcastic face. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so. Uh, so I have a watching. A you were going to respond about X Men. Now I feel like you're pivoting away, and I'm self conscious about talking about the X Men for ten minutes. No, so I mean, my you know, my casual joke aside, I have honestly never been so so. Marvel Studios have helped invigorate so much of my Marvel fandom. Right. Prior to exactly. Prior to that, um, I would say I was more acquainted with the mythology of like DC characters. You know, like I loved Superman, I loved Batman, um, and so the Marvel characters that really connected with me prior to that would have been Incredible Hulk and Spider Man. So I was aware of X Men, watched the X Men films when they came out, but X Men have never really been uh, a grouping of people that I would get terribly passionate about. And I will say, like in full disclosure. That is still true today. Like even at, with my admiration for the existing, you know, some of the existing X Men movies sure, and sure. all of that. Like, just it's not a property that has ever really invigorated me as a as a fan. I just I connect more deeply with certain other storylines and plot lines or everything. But sincerely, your description of how Jonathan Hickman is rebranding them and perhaps introducing them to a new legion of fans. I mean, like I didn't really care very much about Iron Man until Robert Downey Jr. Right, assumed the role. Right. And, and so, so it's uh, it's exciting to consider the possibilities that, that uh, I will become much more well, I would, endeared to them. I would encourage you once this wraps and there's like, you know, physical kind of collected editions out to definitely read it. But as a final note on that, just as a germ of potential interest, I don't know if, if this will be compelling to you at all, but the loosest, most basic, without spoiling a lot of where the stuff the the books go, because it's it's really 
incredibly well-written, high intellectual brain type of storytelling. But effectively, the loose premise is mutants as a population group get wise and finally uniformly band together. Not so much against humans per se, but set themselves a nation as a nation unto themselves. Like, and there's a, there's a great scene in the very first issue of Hickman's run where the fantastic four are talking to Cyclops, Scott Summers and, and say, you don't have to do this. You don't have to be this isolationist. And, um, he says, if everyone told you you were less than your entire life, don't you think you'd be a little reactionary too? Oh, and like the whole, wow. the whole, the whole thing is like mutants against the world idea. In other words, no longer Magneto versus Xavier, Apocalypse versus Xavier, whoever it is purely mutant. Right. If you are mutant, you are part of the nation. It's, it's wow. really, and that's kind of just the barest of sort of lead ins for the whole thing. Anyway, right. oh, that's enough, enough yeah. nerdiness. What is your <laughs> watcha? Cause now I'm self-conscious. So no, 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 don't be, uh, if your self-consciousness is about to evaporate before you, <laughs> uh, like so much. I mean, you did, you did talk about the Bee Gees the way you did. So let's calm down here a second. No, um, <laughs> so, uh, I have a watching, reading and listening to all in one, uh, sort of thing. It is, it is kind of crazy. Uh, anybody who, uh, would uh, tease me <coughs> about uh, my uh, apparent recent reading habits are really going to love this. So <laughs> I am listening to an audiobook of the novelization of the 2018 Halloween film by David Gordon Green. <laughs> So, oh my gosh! <laughs> so the layers. Um, I know, right? So, uh, so it is. It's a watching. It's a reading, and it's a listening to. So, yes. Yeah, so the um, what's funny is I was listening to uh, a podcast that I mostly enjoy. Um, it, it, yeah, that's a side subject. But there's a podcast that kind of unpacks all of the Halloween films. Um, it's a group called the Halloweenies. I really enjoy listening to the guys, but they actively disliked for the most part. Uh, the 2018 film and m- with my strong affection for it obviously it's like uh, whatever but one of the things that do you w- real quick interjection there do you find merit in their critique not or? against that one right, now, right okay. i'm being very because, dismissive against people who can't who aren't here to defend themselves but no like the, the, what they criticized about it the only thing that i can kind of understand is one of the things that they criticized about it was well they did uh, the, uh, here, here. If I can summarize a main complaint against the 2018 Halloween film, is they said the uh, director, creators, all of these guys, Danny McBride, David Gordon Green, made a big deal about we're going to do away with all the sequels, right? And then uh, basically did a bunch of things that harken back to previous things sequels had done. Uh, um, okay. So that yeah. was their big. That was their big complaint. For me, I was like, well, it was also kind of presented as a back to basics right. kind of kind of thing. So you would, you know, uh, again, uh, you would kind of expect they're going to be getting into, uh, you know, you're, it, it, to me, I viewed it as like, well, yeah, if you get, uh, you know, a rock band that has been disbanded for however long and you get the band back together, like and to some degree, you're going to want to hear some of the greatest hits. Like, you know, like there's. Well, there's, and there's to your too. point, you and I have actually never, I don't. I don't know if other than just a passing, we saw it. We've never talked about it. Definitely haven't featured it. We did sure, sure. a feeling film together on that with Aaron White. But, right, right. Um, you know, I would say for someone like me who is not versed 
in the lore. I'd seen the first one because you and I covered it, and right, because right. we watched it at Gardner Webb together. Um, mm-hmm. But also, you showed me the second one in H two O, but that's it. And and so to me, I would almost say your Back to Basics is my accessible. It's just kind of like well, I don't, I don't, I don't need right, or want all right. the stuff. So give me this accessible entry that just kind of. Yeah, go ahead. Well, well, and what's interesting about that, and you just reminded me of this, you've seen H2O, and you saw H2O prior to seeing David Gordon Green's Halloween. Some of the major complaints revolve around, fr- from them, revolve around like, well, H2O did this and did it better. Um, oh. And so so that's, that's a lot of their complaining. Now, I love H2O. I love it, but I also love David Gordon Green's version of Halloween. Um, yeah. And so, so, yeah, I mean, like, Again, I don't want to. I don't want to beat up too much on them because it, apparently their distaste for the film was very controversial amongst their listenership. So I'm not alone in you know that that particular frame of it. But the reason to get back to to the source of my watch and read and listening to, they in one of their episodes, one of the uh, one of the participants in that podcast was reading the novelization, and so and they had expressed some appreciation for it. They said, like, well, no, I didn't really like the film, but this novelization is pretty interesting and pretty good. And so I was like, oh, well, let me let me look it up. Let me see. And uh, my local library did not have the novelization itself, but ironically had the audiobook. So I was like, oh, okay, perfect. That's fine. So I grabbed that. And it is interesting because it is the major beats of the film, but as you would expect from a novelization, there's greater character depth, there's more character interaction, there's you know more substantiation of some of the themes that they're dealing with because you can spend some time, you can spend two pages of material dealing with a character's inner life that would have been nothing more than maybe fifteen to twenty seconds in right, the film. Right. You know, so um, so it do, like I will say this, um, like for people who definitely for people who enjoyed the film. Uh, I think you might find this novelization rewarding. Or if there are people who didn't care for the film, I think uh, maybe you should check out this novelization because it's uh, it's pretty interesting. There are no major, major, major surprises in it. Now, at this point, I am not quite finished with the book, so I am curious to find out. And, and you mean the audio book? With the, the audio book, yes. Of the movie. Okay, right. so listen. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, at this point, I, uh, I I have not yet reached the ending, so I do not know because I know notoriously this ending was changed from a test audience that did not uh, take too kindly to the original ending. I don't know if this novelization will have the ending in the film that we saw or if it will have that different ending that apparently did not test well with audiences. So when I finish the book, I will report back and uh, let you guys know what that's all about. But that's what I have been uh, listening to slash reading slash in my mind remembering the film so watching. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for the Bee Gees to take us out. What you watching? 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 Well, you can tell right away I watch those things and I read them in. Oh boy. I love the seven. Goodness gracious! Okay. Between between um uh the the Rocket Man song last week, and, <laughs> man, people people are gonna look at the show notes and be like, mm, I'm gonna skip what you're watching. <laughs> so okay, so here's what's interesting. Um, what? Tell me. I so 
normally, I, well, and I do have some stuff. So I'm going to make this brief. We've already been going for quite a long time. But um, I uh, like to give, as we have with all of these hashtags speaking in tongues, uh, I like to give some specific recommendations to other films uh, that uh, come from the same region. Uh, and it's funny because Japanese horror, of all of the ones that we have covered so far, I think no uh, region has mo- more impacted the horror genre, the mainstream American horror genre, more than Japanese horror films. Because in the late 90s, there was a tremendous amount of, like, they would have these horror films, specifically like Ghost and Spirit Stories from Japan, specifically Ringu, Juon, uh, and they were translated into American remakes, The Ring, uh, the Grudge, Dark Water, One Missed Call. Um, so there's a lot of them that, by and large, with the possible exception of The Ring, for the most part, audiences that have seen both the uh, Japanese originals and the American remakes will prefer the Japanese originals. Um, I do want to make one comment about a film called Audition. Have you heard of Audition? I've heard of it. Yes, I heard of it. Yeah. So I do want to make one comment about it's, audition. Is it? It's pretty rough, right? That's, it is very rough. In fact, um, I want to. I wanted to mention audition. I am. I, I'm. I'm not quite recommending audition. Uh, I don't even think I'm recommending it at all. But it is an important it's, film. It's kind of like auditioning in general. It sounds pretty hairy. Yes, basically. Yes, um, it's pretty scary. Um, but audition as a film, it was directed by Takasha Miike, and it is. Uh, directly responsible for inspiring mm. uh, one Eli Roth yeah, to go and make yeah uh, to go and make the film hostile so um, uh, audition is sort of softly credited for inspiring the wave of more graphic torturous sort of films that that saw their wave in the early 2000s from the horror genre um, so again it is a very challenging film it's incredibly well made I don't want to be dismissive to it it is incredibly well made it's very powerful and affecting but I uh, have a pretty strong palette for stuff and audition is rough it is very very rough um, to the degree that I don't really want to rewatch it myself but uh, one film that I do love and that I will highly recommend, um, if I am saying the na- the Japanese name right, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Nathan. It is uh, Cairo or Cairo, um, but it is uh, K A I R O, and it is uh, Pulse is the word that was uh, that's the Japanese word for it. It was translated to an American remake, of course, called Pulse, and that American remake is abysmal. But the original Japanese film, again, Cairo uh, or Pulse is amazing. It's a wonderfully crafted ghost story. You would think it's a it's a very rather silly premise involving uh like technology and and uh people with cell phones and and sort of spiritual happenings going on through technology that sounds kind of silly when you look it up on paper but is a very very effective film. So uh, my formal recommendation from the Japanese region, other than the film we're covering today, um, is Cairo or Pulse. Seek out the Japanese or original. Cairo. 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 Okay. You got a little kind of roll, kind of little. Cairo. Okay. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Hey, thank you. So, now, without further ado, with the recommendations out of the way, with the watching, reading, listening to out of the way, and with the TV guide posts out of the way, uh, Nathan, we are diving into a film called Quaidon today and Quaidon is a favorite film of mine. Uh I 
I, I, I don't even know if I can quite <laughs> articulate just what a big deal this film is to me. I um, love, love, love. Well, okay. This film. Well, give us a little context here. Okay. I'm worried that okay. from this second on that that question, like, I'm not, I don't know that it would be awful, f- you know, but for, as far as contributions go, but I don't know that I'm going to be able to speak again by asking that question <laughs> the rest of this episode, however long it <laughs> may be from funny. here on. But what? It's not quite Ernest Come on. Stupid. Like, well, I, I, know, I had a lot to say about Ernest Scared Stupid. Um, um, what give see i can't even i don't even know uh, okay. how, how why why on earth this sounds terrible i'm not okay cut cut to the end here i am not a hater of Quidon, but mm-hmm. it's it's work now how did <laughs> this come it's now i me i'm an enneagram four i am like uh, a need to be different like okay. I love being a nonconformist. I'm like, oh, you don't like that? Well, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, but you are traditionally not quite that way. No, no, no. Like, I'm pretty populist. But this feels like one of those moments where you're like, well, you know what? I love it because I'm a smart intellectual cineast. No, no, no. no. So, um, uh, so that, I'm, I'm, I'm ribbing you. I'm not oh, no, calling no, you no. hoity-toity. But, but this movie is work, and I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious how it became this. You know what I actually wrote down, Reed? Sure. I said, I know Jesus is on every road, but this is a long road. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is a lengthy movie. Um, So, okay. I uh, have been, I've mentioned this in passing on the show before. I have been prone in days and decades prior uh, to just visiting the library and browsing sure. the various shelves. I would frequently bring home a couple of books that just the title or the cover caught me. Um, I would f- sometimes go in there with intention to pick up a certain thing, but most of the time I would just browse and and pick up things that interested me. Well, on this one particular occasion, I was browsing the video section of the library and saw a film, and on the cover of this film, now this will uh, ha- it'll mean something to you. If listeners haven't seen this film, it may not mean something to you. On the cover of the film was a close-up picture of uh, Hoichi with Mm -hmm. his face covered in that writing. Yeah. That image arrested me, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Which is an arresting image. I'm I'm down with you there. Yeah. And so so that image arrested me, and I looked on the back, and I just simply saw four ghost stories. I was like, oh, oh, okay, all right, I'll I'll, I'll check this out. Uh, The runtime was a little intimidating, but I was like, okay, well, let me me see it. Now, was that the um, shortened version, or was that the three-hour version? It was the slightly abbreviated version. So we'll get into this a little bit later, but there have been three released versions of the film. One is only two hours in length and omits an entire story. One is an, was the widely released Criterion version for a long time that was in, uh, it was two hours and 40 minutes long. And then the version you saw and the version that is widely circulated right now is the full three-hour uncut uh, edition that was originally envisioned. So I saw the two-hour and 40-minute version first. And from, Nathan, from the opening credits with those drops of paint into the liquid and dispelling, mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm. Oh wow, this is this is different. This is kind of this is kind of captivating. And so I'm sitting there and the credits go on for like 4 minutes, right? And so I'm sitting there I'm like, "Wow." And I'm and and I'm just watching it because I'm like I don't know, okay, I don't know what's happening next. And I will tell you, it is the opening sequence of the first story 
where those gates open. Black hair. And it just, yeah, the opening sequence of, of black hair where it just pushes in to that house and it's quiet and it's still. And dude, I, know. I see, I love me a great ghost story. But my problem with the majority of ghost stories is that for to me, for my sensibilities, for a ghost story to be really effective, it depends tremendously upon atmosphere. And it right. depends tremendously upon like space and a little bit of patience and something like that. Like those are the most effective ghost stories to me. And so immediately when I saw that, I was like, oh dang, this this is pretty cool. And so I completed the entire film. And I remember when I when I ended the film for that first viewing, I was like, man, I loved that. It was so different what I had been kind of acclimated to at the time. But I w- okay, so it, this is interesting. We just brought up audition, uh, which had you know sort of been it was made in 1999. There was a wave in horror at the time of graphic violence and extreme sort of uh, like uh, kind of demented and twisted and uh, extremely graphic and its depiction of violence that became somewhat prominent in the 2000s in the early 2000s and this when all of that was happening in the horror world to see a film like this that is so patient and is just interested in a very very simple narratives um elegantly filmed uh it just it really was a breath of fresh air you know you know you know how like 45 minutes ago I said, I said, Ulrich is a good man. And then within like seconds, I was doubting that statement. <laughs> right, you know? right, right. Well, right. that's not going to happen here. Read like you're a good man. You are <laughs> a good man. Like, let me ask you this question, Thank though. You. What stage of life were you in when this library adventure happened? Like, uh, I was single, living alone. Oh, oh man. I what? knew that's what you were going to say. <laughs> because you know what makes me so mad about life sometimes is context is everything, brother. Sure, sure. Oh, my yeah. gosh. No, I get it. So get it. you didn't ask me this, but one, I'm curious how you want to approach the, 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 the general chatting about this movie. Do you want to sure, go sure. story by story? But to hear, ugh, you know what? Like this this movie, I was watching it, and I was like, damn gummit. This is compelling. It's interesting. But, oh, my God, it's so long. Like, um, I wish, I wish a month ago, now I'm not putting this off on you, but I wish a month ago you'd been like, Hey, Nathan, in a month, we're going to be covering quite on now it's long, but it's four stories. Now, what I want you to do (laughs) is, you know, pour your little glass of wine, a little cider, whatever it is, Nathan drinks while he watches movies (laughs) or podcasts with fireball whiskey, um, (laughs) and just do one at a time. And just yeah, uh, apl- apply no yeah. apply no pressure to yourself, because when the clock starts ticking, tick tock, tick tock. Sure, says yeah, Helga, sure, sure. After, you're gonna be like, oh my god, oh, <laughs> Hoichi the earless. Will someone just <laughs> rend that man's ears from his head? Because this story needs to end. But oh but I, I'm it. It sounds like I'm crap on the movie. I'm actually not. It's just because I do find it interesting. I found it. Sure, I found right, it. Right. I think the I think the stories are very great. Like it's yeah, the kind sure. of stories like what you described. I would have responded to uh, mm, in, yeah, a, in, right. a, in a in a context that's more like restful. And in fact, sure, a lot of what I kind of responded to is what you described. This sort of intentional, paced, quiet, largely quiet. Oh um, yes, you know, meditative, which is very 
Meditative is a this, perfect word for this film. You know, kind of, but doggone, it is, or, <laughs> or quite on, it is not. <laughs> it is not easy watching for yeah. a, 20, a 2019 busy life. Well, and see, sure. and, and, and here's what I, and oh, God. I, Which I, makes I, it sound, hear me, I am not pooping the movie. That, no, that, no, no, I don't, I don't hear that at all. No, I, in fact, I think, I think that's the thing. This is a film that is so atypical of, like, I have difficulty when I recommend the film to people, I always have to qualify it with like 45 yes, different things, you know? And, and, and that does. <laughs> One of them is, how many kids you got? Because <laughs> <laughs> it is, and it, and it is, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult because I, I will tell you this, like, and I thought this while I was watching the film this time around, uh, dude, I, I watched this twice in preparation for the podcast. Like, I, Get, you're, the, all right. I did. I did. I am. I'm, I am pulling a Ulrich's a good man moment now. I'm taking it back. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. So, but like one of the things for me that I loved about it, and I remember sitting here, I was like, "This is a night. This is like a night at a stage play. That's what this feels like. This is the kind of thing where I'm like, it insists that you sit and you attend to it, and if yeah, you don't, I know, then then you're going to you're going to not quite. You're going to fall asleep. <laughs> You're going to watch the clock. You're yeah, going to be yeah. drumming your fingers towards the end. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, your, this your is wife's a film. Gonna, your, wife's, your wife, when hearing you're watching a three-hour 1964 Japanese ghost story anthology movie, is going to be like, <laughs> you couldn't pay me 100 bucks to do that. <laughs> right. Actually, what she said is maybe 100 <laughs> <laughs> But it is. It's the, it's the kind of thing that, like, yeah, it is really best enjoyed in one of two ways. Either A, you have... Three hours of uh, three, three to three and a half hours of unencumbered time that you can just sit and focus on it, or perhaps with like two broken segments where you could watch because they are complete stories in and of themselves. Where you watch the first two, which takes about an hour and twenty five minutes, and then the next two, which takes about an hour, or just minutes. one at a time. Have you? Or see, just one at a time. I've yeah. got slight substantiation for where I'm coming from here. I feel like I've said multiple times on the show before about anthologies specifically in the context of things like King books, you know, uh, right, right, that right. one of the reasons I don't enjoy anthology books, even though I love the stories in them often is the, is the, now this isn't a, a fault of the, the form. It's a fault of me, but this weird kind of accomplishment syndrome that happens when you're consuming a piece of media, oh, you're I like, see. yeah, right, right. You know, right. I'm reading a book. Oh, that's it's a thousand page, the stand like, Oh my God. Yeah. But you get the end of it and you're like, I finished the stand. You know, <laughs> you, you pick up everything's eventual and you're like, I finished the man in the black suit. Now right, there's a right. dozen more. Anyway, <laughs> right, 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 right. same no, kind of idea here, which is the, the feeling you get to the end of one. You're like, and yeah. I gotta get, I gotta get back on the horse. <laughs> That's funny. Well, and it's interesting too because you are, you are not alone. I, I am a bit of a, of an outlier in this. That, um, so the film was widely praised and still is to this day by uh, American critics, um, but it received a relatively tepid response from audiences because well, it was brought over from yeah. Japan, uh, like kind of tangential to like the Godzilla films. So when you've got like action spectacle oh, yeah. and then and then they and you drop... see Quidon and you're like Sayonara <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's so like I, I get it. And it is something where like, you. if you're listening to you know if you're listening to us on this, like yeah, I mean I 
I am going to heap a mountain of affection on this film. Um, and I feel like if it is the kind of thing that interests you, like, yes, it's it's meditative. It's deliberately paced. It does not relent with that. It's not like, oh, it's deliberately and slow paced, but if you get to the end, then things pick up and it's all over. No, like, it is a meditative film. And, that it, yeah. And, I, you know how, man, there's so much, I just feel like a, uh, I don't know what, but like, remember how last <laughs> week I made a comment about dark and how sometimes I just feel stupid watching things <laughs> like each story. Um, not woman in the snow. Woman in the snow is a pretty straightforward narrative. Sure. Um, sure. But so, you know, we go wherever we want, but it's black hair, woman in the snow, um, Hoichi, the earless, and then the cup of tea. Um, yeah. So four, four stories, the, the method of editing like the actual film editing is such that things like, again, bear with me, like be, be, be generous with me, be patient with me, be meditative with Nathan <laughs> right now as he like laments the, his, his 2019 brains inability to slow down. But just the editing, I was like, ah, I don't even know what's happening. Like it is, <laughs> it's it, the amount of energy, mental energy. And I'm not, saying it's bad like art sure it's sure. it's art it's art it is and art yeah as someone who wants to be an appreciator of art but sometimes it's just like that gum it just give me godzilla you know like <laughs> you <laughs> that gum it just give me godzilla that's nathan's hot take on this week's speaking <laughs> that gum it just give me godzilla <laughs> Nice effing awesome. nice kaiju. Huh, huh? Oh my um, gosh, that's funny. But, you know, 10 minutes into Black Hair, I'm like, oh my gosh, the amount <laughs> of mental energy I am exercising oh to figure out what is happening in this t- in this story. <laughs> to the point when I said I feel stupid is once, because I didn't read anything. I just trust my friend Reed to not mm, lead me astray. Yeah. Now, all I know is anthology. So sure, sure. once... Um, this was most evident in Hoichi, but also present in Black Hair as well. Once the narrative, once the story starts locking in, because it is, it's not just a, a three-hour film from 1964. It is a three-hour 1964 anthology from Japan, rooted and bedrocked in a culture you are utterly unfamiliar yes, with. Yes, and so yes, like absolutely, yeah, and and all the potential film craft styling of that region. So so there is so much requiring your in intention and attention. And so once some of the stories, I mean Cup of Tea is pretty short, so it's not that big a deal, but Hoichi and Black Hair specifically. I remember once the stories are in the last kind of third for each of them or last fourth, I was like, hmm, yeah, that's a pretty cool story. Yeah. Doggone right, it. Right. Doggone it. That was work to make me feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I get it. I get it. And and that's the thing that it's like uh I think it's I think it's good that we're discussing the film the way that we are because I do feel like this is a film that if you I mean you've gotta you've gotta enjoy at least to a degree. Like I would not recommend this to a film that's like, yeah, I don't like slow paced films. Like stuff's gotta get moving. I'm like, you the, will hate the whole on. day. Like, that's not your film. All day. I've been like, doggone it. I don't know if I can recommend this. There's gonna be so many qualifiers attached to my recommendation. <laughs> you know? No, I understand. I understand. But I will say this, and and you know, it will be two sides of that coin. 
man, if you appreciate... Well, I will say this. If you appreciate an evening of live stage theater and you potentially go into a film like this with that mindset versus the initial cinematic mindset, you might have some appreciation for it. But if you... uh, The other sort of side of that is that if you also just enjoy artful, like dramatic, slower-paced cinema... This is an easy recommend if you already are acclimated to slower-paced, deliberate, sort of independent-type films, then then I think it, it, it would uh, be easier to get on the wavelength for a film like this. But, yeah, go ahead. But if you're watching it to check a box, you are going to struggle, my friend. Yes, um, that's true. That's true. Um, that said, you know, all sort of tomfoolery aside for the next two seconds— um, you made this comment about the theatricality of it. I, that's actually a broad note I wrote that I, is a love. I mean, I love mm-hmm. the high theater of it. It is very, presen- oh, yeah. it's very presentational. I love the sets. Oh, um, the sets. You know, like oh, the sets gosh. are fantastic. And and it's, you know, again, I, I am so far removed, not just from the inter, intermost depths of Japanese culture, but also the film craft of that era from that region. So it's hard to know, like, what's intentional what's kind of you know what i mean like it's, it's oh, just sure, hard to know what's sure. what i mean everything's intentional i don't mean that but as in like am i just observing something from a different era am i observing something from a different era and different region that's just very intentional in its presentation i just don't know right. but i did love the sets the temple in black hair um oh man it's uh, great. the um woman of the snow or woman on woman in the snow whatever it is woman, um, yeah woman in the snow I mean, sets wise, a little less so, but um, Hoichi, the one of the strongest runs of the whole three hours is when he's actually in the oh, ghost temple. I mean, that's a with great the fog and the oh yeah, yeah, yeah. man, oh it's such a great shot. Well, so uh, so you mentioned the sets, and I'm I'm so appreciative that you loved that element of it. So the director Masaki Kobayashi was a skilled painter before becoming a filmmaker. These sets were hand painted inside yeah, say, of that makes sense. Yeah, inside of an airplane hangar. So everything that you see is very much like you and I both have got theater degrees. Like the the everything you see is very much like let us build a set and then let us populate this set with characters and present to you uh, this this story in a very sort of staged manner. And uh, and yes, I, I I just absolutely love it. It actually was filmed on two separate sound stages. So the director was, while filming one story, would be overseeing the set design and stage design of the next story in the other in the other sound stage so that they wouldn't have to so dramatically tear everything down to the same place to do it. Um, and, well, uh, yeah. let, me, let me ask you. I'm cool to hang for a three-hour runtime right now, but do you, <laughs> knowing where we're at, like, do you have a particular... Do you, do you want to address each one? Do you want to highlight favorites? Like, do, what what would be so? Um, so here's what I'd kind of like to do. Yeah, we've been, we've been talking a long time. Uh, one of the respect. I don't, with, I don't care. I just think sure, if sure, we're, sure. If we're, we're going to go point by point on four different ones, that may be no. That that's going to be a long time. So let me let me run through just a couple of uh, quick trivial bits, um, and and then we can express. Uh, we'll just kind of go through plot wise, and maybe some if you have a highlight or or a comment to make about any of the specifically then we can we'll kind of try to make our way through each of them in a cursory superficial level rather quickly and then we can talk about some thematics to close things out but 
A couple of things, uh, trivial. Uh, Kwai Don is literally translated as ghost story or ghost stories. Um, and uh, the, four, the four stories were meant to be evocative of the four seasons, beginning mm-hmm. with uh, autumn, the fall for black hair, obviously winter for woman in the snow, um, and then uh, spring for Hoichi the earless, and summer for in a cup of tea. <laughs> um, but uh, what? I'd, you know, you're, you are just getting the unfiltered takes of three hours of meditative <laughs> Japanese 60s theatrically presented, you know, kind of ghost stories. But (laughs) even Hoichi, I was like, he ain't earless. I don't know what this title (laughs) is, but he can't see, but he's got ears. I see him right there. So anyway. (laughs) That's that's funny. Um, Please carry on. No, that's okay. Uh, So this was the Japanese entry. It was nominated for an Academy Award for uh, foreign language film, 1966. Uh, Did not win. I forget what won that year. but. I thought the film was 64, but maybe I'm wrong. The film is 64, but it was oh. not. Uh, the rules are different for when it was uh, when it was applicable to be nominated, uh, mm. and so that's the gap of those couple of years. But no, it was released officially in 1964. So I mentioned earlier there were three versions. The two-hour version basically just omits the story, the woman in the snow. Um, mm-hmm. That that isn't present for it at all. It's just black hair, Hoichi, and cup of tea. Uh, the two-hour and 40-minute version has all four stories, but each of them are in a slightly abbreviated version. So the full version just takes its time and expands out both of those with some additional shots, uh, a couple of deleted scenes here and there. But um, the last note that I have that's somewhat trivial, well, maybe not the last, but but then we'll start moving through the stories. So the head priest in Hoichi the Earless is played by a renowned Japanese character actor named Takashi Shimura. Um, who had more than he has more than 250 acting credits on his IMDb, and he appeared in nearly 20 of the films of Akira Kurosawa, who was mm. ar- arguably Japan's most popular and famous director to come to Western audiences. Um, so I just wanted to point him out because, uh, in terms of like star power, as much star power as you can get from a film like this from this era, um, that head priest was you know the equivalent of like a major star at the time. So. The, the one thing I do want to mention is the musical score. Um, this the score is fascinating to me. It is utterly fascinating because it does not pervade every single moment of the film. There's no. so much no. silence, but when it comes in, it's so fascinating because it can be jarring. Um, I have a couple of quotes from the composer. Um, the composer, the only name that I have is Takimitsu. I don't know if that's a last name or if that was like like a stage name, uh, but in his career, he had more than 100 film scores, and he said about Kwaidan that he wanted to create an atmosphere of terror. If the music is constantly saying, watch out, be scared, then all of the tension is lost. So instead, he would withhold certain you know, uh, musical mm-hmm. moments until he felt like it was going to create a maximum impact, you know, like once the horror is unveiled. But he used real wood for some of the sound effects like he would he would like crack and break wood and layer that over like a tone on an instrument and that's how a lot of those sounds were created and it's it's really an inventive score it's not the type of score that you would cue up and just like listen to but as right. a companion piece to the film it's it's really really wonderful um so just kind of moving through the stories i'm going to summarize the plots of each one um like and as we go through them then we can just if you have a comment to make about it so the first one's called black hair basic premise is there is a young samurai who has fallen on some important 
impoverished time because the person he worked for, um, I forget if he had, he, it says the ruin of his master, but uh, I don't know if that means that he, he died or if there was some scandal or something, but he comes into poverty and he has an opportunity to take another position, but that other position means marrying the daughter of the person he's going to go and now work for, which means he has to leave his current wife. So his current wife uh, loves him, is very devoted. He leaves her to go pursue his fame, and then it's a loveless marriage that he steps into, and all of that you know, becomes very bitter to him and difficult. So he decides to make his way back, and when he makes his way back, uh, the woman has forgiven him and accepts and welcomes him. And it is, I am just going to spoil everything about these films for those who are not interested in watching a three-hour film, although I think even if you know what's happening, it's pretty rewarding. But um, so then when he returns, he has a a loving night with her, um, and she takes him back, she forgives him. He awakens the next morning to find that the house that he has returned to is in utter disarray, which it did not appear to him at first. It is in utter disarray, and the woman that he was lovingly embraced by the night before is is actually a rotting corpse next to him um and so it's it's very alarming <laughs> when he discovers that you said you had some trouble getting on the wavelength of of this particular story Did, but you said ultimately like at the end you you kind of like oh that was that was cool was that just yeah, i don't want to be mean, too part of, reductive part of it's just, but... um please <laughs> um no i mean I just meant like just dialing into the whole film, not just by story, but like just the whole film and its its delivery flavor takes mm. some 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 conscientiousness, and so it took. And the editing is a little distinct from what sure, we'd be yeah, what yeah. we'd be used to in a current sort of presentation. Um, sure, yeah. And uh, you know, it it is a little. So you'd seen it once, you watch it, then you rewatch it for this. That's nine hours of your life. But um, <laughs> oh, I've seen it multiple times. This oh I gosh. just rewatched. I just rewatched it twice for this presentation. <laughs> sure, sure, right, right. I've seen it probably half a dozen times. Wow, I know, I know. Um, I just, your, your microphone just fell. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I feel like uh, you know Jonas staring at a truck with <laughs> with his his child mother and oh, her father. <laughs> no, I liked black hair. Um, it, it it just took a bit because again, you're le- you're kind of learning as you go. You're you're learning right, right. a cultural sort of hierarchy and sort of system and and dynamics as you're watching a movie that takes a little sort of adjustment to. And yes, by the end of it, and then I was like, now I'm confused. Did he come home to? Was he hold the whole time? I'm, yeah, it was a little confusing, but mm. but the general flavor I did enjoy, and you know, a, a few funny notes was so his second wife, who is consistently dressed in purple and has some some like hella weird black teeth, is weird. <laughs> um, just, yeah, I don't quite know what that was about. Yeah, I don't either. His, he's sleeping at one point, and I said, "Old purple girl comes in and you know tries to put the woo woo on him, and she gives him the hard pass." <laughs> While he's sleeping, and she smacks him twice, and then shows these weird <laughs> teeth. It's like, what is going on? I don't know. <laughs> he broke down, tries to put the woo woo, <laughs> and then he gave her the hard pass. Yeah, 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 oh, man. Yeah. He was like, nah, 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 man. I gotta, I gotta <laughs> oh, go, I gotta go back to the black hair. God, um, I love, I love the shot where he's in the. Because one of the things I love about this story is just how haunted he is by the decision he's made. We'll get to that in theme, but. 
Um, but I love the shot where he's like in the archery tournament or like in the archery practice and like keeps getting yeah 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 images of his oh man it's it's wonderful now i will say that i can't go ahead ahead. you know you you all i was gonna say is um a couple of these i can identify where i started to doze off because then i woke up so when that's meant to be funny but also slightly true um (laughs) he falls asleep next to what he thinks is his his rediscovered bride and he wakes up and the shriek he emits when he discovers the corpse like that. Oh my gosh. I was, I was probably close to dozing there and I was like, Oh, I'm awake. Oh, I'm here. Yep. <laughs> yep got my attention. I'm awake. Yep. Oh gosh. She's freaky. Um, now she, I w- she did. <laughs> she did. I will say that as, as almost, <laughs> as almost silly as the recurring attacks of the black hair are, Oh, we haven't mentioned that yet. So, so, the corpse is there, but then strangely the black hair that is sitting there like begins to kind of attack him. And as silly as that kind of thing is, I find the combination of like that minimalist score that we were talking about, yep. the slightly tilted camera angles uh-huh. and the and the frenetic performance of the actor there, it has a kind of a disturbing effect to me. Oh yeah. Um, I, I I described it as a macabre dance. That was very effective. His yeah, his, yeah. his his aging slash decay. Oh my gosh. And yes. If any constant listener remembers my take of the first uh, It film and It the book on our Quarterly King, hair hair can be the most gorgeous, luxuriant thing in the world, but it can be <laughs> nasty, too. <laughs> and by the end of Black Hair, is nasty. <laughs> that is true. That is very true. Um so uh, I think we can leave that one there for the moment. We might come back to it in theme. But uh, the second story is called The Woman in the Snow. Uh, the biggest sort of trivial bit I want to mention to that is that if any listeners have seen the film Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, um, there was a different adaptation and iteration of this same story called Lover's Vow. Um, that it that is almost beat for beat this this story, but modernized, of course, with some with some new tales from the dark side esque twists to it. But so obviously, one of the things that might have stood out to you, I mentioned these were hand painted sets. The sky in the woman in the snow is specifically designed to resemble a face with the eyes looking down. Did you catch that? These ominous eyes that were constantly watching over the fishermen. So the clouds. Listen, listen, Reed. I know <laughs> last week and this week I said, sometimes I feel dumb. I don't think I'm actually dumb. Yes, I noticed the eyes in the background. <laughs> so, well, I don't know. Maybe you were dozing. Maybe you would be like, oh my God, this movie's so long. I don't know. Wait, no. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Woman in the Snow. I don't remember that one at all. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Wait, there's I'm four stories? Kidding. Right. Um, oh, God. <laughs> um, hey, can I tell you a really funny story live on air right now? Sure, yeah. So you know how like two years ago during our Universal series we covered The Mummy? Right. On that episode, late in it, you start talking about a scene. And I just sort oh. of yes, I yes and you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in the moment, I'm like... I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> it's because it, it's because it's because I dozed off during the movie and didn't realize I'd missed a whole chunk. <laughs> that is hysterical. That is so. I just remember funny. you talking. I was like, man, I don't remember that. <laughs> what is he? Did he? But it was like it was like whole plot elements. Like, okay, oh whatever. my gosh, that is hysterical. Yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, on. the loose the loose premise of this is that there's uh, an older fisherman and a younger his younger protege. They are trapped in the in a blizzard, and then while they're trying to kind of survive the night, the young protege wakes up and discovers that there is a woman who has basically sort of breathed ice 
upon his older companion, and the woman goes over and starts to, uh, like, the presumption is that she's going to kill him, uh, but she takes pity on him, and she makes him vow that he will never tell about what has taken place that night. So the young fisherman survives, moves on with his life, um, and then later on he meets um, a young woman. They fall in love. They, uh, you know, develop a family. To, you know, they have a family together, a few children, um, and so he's very happy. He's very satisfied. Like ten, I, I can't remember if it's ten or fifteen years later. I think I want to say ten. Um, they're sitting in in their home alone together, and suddenly he looks at her. And when he looks at her, he has a flash memory of that night back of the woman in the snow. And so then he he tells his wife about what had happened and how he thought it was a dream. And when he tells her this, she grows somber for a moment and then turns and reveals that she was actually the woman in the snow. And so, you know, basically tells him that if it was not for the children that they now have, that she would end his life right where it right where he stood um, and then leaves him sort of forever. That is the the substance of the story. Um, I, most people that when I read like online reviews and everything like that, most people find this story the most interesting or this story sort of the really? most compelling. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Cause I find yeah. it the most predictable. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, um, you know, if you're keeping score at home, so I started to doze when they fell asleep and, and hair, hairball, <laughs> um, you know, what hairball. will wake you up in this one is not thinking by any stretch of the imagination that a 1964 foreign language nominated Japanese three hour anthology series would have nudity in it. And all of a sudden it does. And your spouse is walking through you're like, Oh my God, um, <laughs> Let you me know, change this. Wait a skip, minute. skip past that. I don't know. Nothing to see here. Um, <laughs> it's the woman in the snow. Um, uh, um, I thought this one was fine. Like I do think it's pretty predictable. And if I have any criticism, I yeah. wish they hadn't cast the same, actor or done some more you know kind of makeup style thing um, yeah. just because it, it's you know well the minute, it's fascinating the minute the malevolent entity says never tell uh, yeah of course like, oh, of course yeah i know well, where this is going what's interesting about that so uh spoilers i mean the story is a spoiler but spoilers for the tales from the dark side version in the tales from the dark side version his initial sort of encounter is with an actual monster like a gargoyle type uh, creature yeah and yeah. so then he falls in love with a woman tells the woman about it you know all those years and it's a really chilling scene because then after he tells her the story the actor turns around and looks at him and just screeches at him you swore you swore you'd never tell wow. and then like transforms yeah, cool. into that thing which is a very alarming moment so it definitely you know this is a much more understated I do appreciate I do appreciate in this one that I I liked the aspect that she has been moved by her lived experience with him and, yeah, and the raising yeah. of these children and so spares him from this fate sure. that she promised. Uh, that happened, right? Oh, yeah, no. That- <laughs> okay. I mean... <laughs> that is true. Yes, there are moments exactly of kind I mean. of fever dream. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's um, okay. So, yeah. So then we, we, we get on, unless you had more to say about the ye old woman in the snow, we get to the longest of the four stories, um, which is Hoichi the Earless. It opens up with this extended sequence of this ballad of a, a war that took place uh, apparently you know, centuries ago or many years ago, um, uh, between these two rival clans and, and, um, and yeah. so he's, that, ten- that was, that was the struggle sequence. This one. Yeah. And I will say as much as I love this film and I do love it, 
that is the sequence that always sort of like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of ready to get to the core story. Like that ballad sets everything up, but it is a 25-minute sequence. And when you're already sort of even on the wavelength of the extended sort of patient uh, time that it's taking, that, that sequence is a little bit of a struggle to get to because it's not your core story yet. It's almost kind of like a an intermission version that's a preamble to the main story. But so the premise is that Hoichi is a, is a blind uh, priest and he is so skilled at this instrument and at singing the song, the ballad of this story, he is beset one night and he's blind so does not realize it. He is uh, taken by these spirits to go and perform that ballad for a host of uh, basically this these spirits, these ghost dead people, uh, ghost pirate lepers, and so basically he's, <laughs> he's, he has a but specific, now. but specifically, they are the winning side of that battle. Yes, the the, ha- yes. the ha- Heiki clan. Um, yes, the Heiki the ba- clan. The, the battle of Denaura. Mm, um, yes, good job. Good yes, job. Yes. So um, so then the his fellow priests are starting to wonder, like, where is he going at night? Why is he so tired? All of these other sort of things. They follow him, and when they follow him, that's actually the big reveal. Well, supposed big reveal. You know it automatically, but that's the reveal to them, like, oh, you've been performing for a host of ghosts when he thought he was performing for an actual, like, royal Court, assembly. Yeah. And um and so when they bring him back, they're like, you're in grave danger because now that you have, because he wasn't supposed to tell anybody about it, so now that this has been discovered, they're going to come after him. So they write, what they do to protect him is they write on his skin, uh, head to toe, they write, well, not quite, but we'll get there. Uh, they <laughs> write um, this the text of this, it's like a sacred text that they cover his body in so that when the spirits come for him, he will be gone to them. He will be invisible to them. Um, what the priests, his peer priests neglect to do is actually write the text on his ears. So when the spirits come, all they see are his ears. And so they have come to claim him, basically take his life um, when they find his ears in a rather vicious, brutal scene. They rip his ears off um, and and he is. Well, but do com- you now you've seen it. 15 times but do you and and for me it was a bit of a just wild ride i didn't (laughs) comprehend that that warrior spirit was there to do him harm but Uh, just mm. to return him again you know what i mean like i I thought because because the previous sort of visits that war that specific warrior spirit came and and beckoned him to that right the ghostly court and so i thought this is just a repeat of that but now he's the, the the fellow priests have have warned him of this. They've hidden him from right. you. Anyway, so right. but but well, it was uniquely yeah. to dispatch with him. It, well, basically, what the head priest, who was that you know famous right. character actor I mentioned earlier, what the head priest is telling him is like, you've been basically like, if you continue to go back there, they will claim you. You will be possessed into the spirit. Oh, oh, oh like, okay, right, right, right. He's like, so, he's like seven days. <laughs> right. I mean, it's kind of, it's funny because it's kind of like, it's one of those things where it's like, you can't keep going back there because if you do, you'll be lost okay. forever. Uh, okay. I see that. And yeah. so, and so then when he comes, when the, the warrior spirit comes, then he's like, Hmm, well I was, I was meant to come and to find, you know, the player and bring the player back. I can't find him. All I have are his ears. So I will 
get his ears and bring them back to basically show my master that, hey, I did what you asked me to do, but he wasn't there. All that was there was his ears. But Hoichi... And and then he's like, you hear me? (laughs) Yeah, can y'all hear me? Um, So Hoichi has been been challenged by his fellow priests, and this is why that scene is so disturbing. He's been challenged by his peers to basically not utter a sound during that, like while he's there, because if he utters a sound, he will make the spirit aware of his presence there, and the spirit will then take all of him. What is so just disturbing and upsetting about that scene is while this spirit is wrestling his ears off of his head, he is trying desperately not to utter a sound while this terribly, terribly painful thing is happening to him. So it's pretty it's pretty upsetting. But then but that story uh of any of the stories has what you would consider to be a, a quote unquote happy ending because he survives the ordeal, becomes uh very famous, and what I love about that is that he be- kind of comes becomes this person who like bears witness to what has taken place and and sort of sings the legends of the people and becomes very popular and famous because of it. And so uh this is the only one of the four pieces that kind of has uh, like I said, a happy ending to it. So the, uh, so the takeaway is get a tattoo. <laughs> basically. Become famous. Well, basically. Can I, do you care if I comment on Hoichi? No, no, please, by all means. So, what, um, I think if you could excise the um, Battle of Danaura filmed version, I do think, <clears throat> to me, this is the most interesting um, mm. uh, kind of overall, I think, that actor who plays Hoichi is really strong. I think he is, the yeah. the just kind of production design of the tattoo, the full body tattoo, is really oh, com- compelling imagery. Um, sure. I think you've got the comic relief in those two other priests. <laughs> They're you've fun. Got, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in fact, what I wrote is in all caps: "Badass emergence of the court assembly." Um, oh, you know, that's so of the Hakey clan when he's out there, and I just love like. I don't know if it resonated with you, but the echoes of Kubo, um, the film. Oh, absolutely. Love, the, oh, the, yeah. The, the Biwa instrument mm-hmm. that Hoichi yep. plays is exactly what Kubo plays in that film. Um, absolutely. I did. I mean, now for all those positives that, and I love the scene, like, like you just described the scene of the ghost taking his ears, which, which even again, doesn't feel like a malevolent act in the moment as much as it's just, Oh, you know, here's some ears. Let me take them back. Um, (laughs) but the way that shot, the way that's kind of presented is really exceptional, but this has been the first time in a long time in the middle of a movie. I wanted to Google, like go look at WebMD and be like, wait a minute. Uh, (laughs) can you have your ears taken from your head and then still hear? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I, it's, I really, I really struggle with that one because I was like, "Oh man, that ain't right. This brother is gonna be blind and deaf. <laughs> it's gonna be so dark." And in the seems, dark. yeah, which seems the natural sort of way this story would end, but nope, nope. Well, nope. and you uh, did you Google it? Did you find out? Nah, man, I just. <laughs> Like, this was three hours long. I didn't. Yeah. Anything, I, I gotta, I gotta pause enough times to take notes, man. Yeah, so so you you are able to hear only because your eardrum is so deep into your into your cranium into what? the canal. Like, yeah, you are able to hear did without you, your ears. What? Did I know. You Google, I, I did just, you Google no, that? I did not. I did not Google this, but I know this to be to be true because. Uh, Howdy, the, all right. No, I'm not challenging you. I'm very. I'm genuinely curious. How on earth do you know that piece of arcane information? 
Okay, because I've so often heard the story that when Vincent Van Gogh was driven mm. mad by inner ear problems, he thought he could rid himself of his inner ear problems by chopping off his ear and was obviously unsuccessful. It's because your eardrum is so deep into... I mean, I would imagine it would be Reed, more difficult to hear, you, but... Yeah. You are a good man. <laughs> that is impressive. You have... You have Reed wins this episode of the Drew God. Like, you did it. You just did it. I, I, I did not have the energy or care to actually hunt up that information, but I did think it. And look at you. That is so funny. Um, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, my only uh, comments about that are uh, I, love the, I love the shots Woo! of Hoichi. It's a long Here. episode. It is. It is. We're, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, I love the shots of uh, Hoichi hearing the sounds of the warrior spirits like coming to him, uh-huh. um, but the but the concept of a blind man being beset by spirits just is fascinating yeah, to me. Yeah, that's a great um, take. And and so yeah, I just I, I love I, I do agree with you. I, I love uh, a lot about that particular story. Well, even um, the Will of the Wisps, you know, the fire oh, sort of floating man. fire and the oh my yeah, gosh yeah 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 that's just yeah. There's so much to love about that about that story. Um, so I'm going to uh, briefly describe the final story as a pivot into into theme and then we can, you know, wrap a bow on this and wind down. Um the uh, so the final story is called In a Cup of Tea and it's fascinating to me that it opens up by saying, you know, many of the stories that have pa- been passed down to us from the generations is are incomplete. They don't have endings. And I think it is so audacious and excellent that this story is incomplete. <laughs> I know that sounds weird. It's brief, but it does not have a firm resolution to it, and I love that about it. I don't even I don't even fully know why. I mean, I have a, like a theme thing that I've written down, but I just love the fact that it's like you you're already asking a lot of your audience to put in 3 hours to sit and watch these four stories but the fact that your fourth story is going to conclude incomplete i just think that takes guts <laughs> like that is really really strong um but the premise of it is there's this man who uh basically when he ta- he lifts up his cup of tea he sees the image of a person in his cup of tea and then he he drinks it anyway and then when he later goes and sees the the like he continues to pick up cups of tea and then it feels as if the image is getting closer and closer to him <laughs> like you know like the tv in the ring or something so but um so what this then becomes is then he begins to see spirits like come to him and say you've done you've done me harm the image says to him and then Three other people come to him and say, you've done our master harm and our master is going to come and take revenge. So he tries to like do battle with these spirits and finds it somewhat difficult to to actively do battle with these with these spirits. And what I found so compelling about this is that then the show I'm going to have to get a little meta about this in the film. The film sets up that the story I just described to you was written down and that it was written down incomplete. So then what you have is you have like a meta narrative where a publisher visits the house of the person who was supposedly writing that story down and that author has now disappeared and they have left behind this very cryptic letter about a man swallowing another man's soul, which I found so arresting. I feel like the story is so ahead of its time with the idea of a meta narrative 
like getting outside of your own story. I don't know how much of that was around in 1964, but I don't think much of it. And then the concept, and this is what really uh, drove me. There's two things that I had for theme um, that I'll write down, and we can unpack it for a moment, and then we can wind down you, this this Quaidon level episode. I mean, just are you, do you not care what I think of Cup of Tea? I mean, I mean, you've pretty much said you don't like this movie, so I just no, no, <laughs> I absolutely did not say that. No, no, I was very intentional about not saying I don't like this movie. Yes, yes. I have oh, deep no, so, no, what respect do you think for this movie. I thought it was comedy gold. <laughs> <laughs> that man's face showing up in that man's tea. That was hysterical. I was he's like, I know like, they are not meaning this, but daggum, that's funny. Because like, the look on his face, he's like, right, at him. right. It's like, it's like, like oh, <laughs> honey, don't buy this tea. This tea's right. expired. <laughs> <laughs> what did I eat for breakfast? Oh, my gosh. Shouldn't like, I have those eggs? No, I just kept calling him Smiley in my nose. Oh, there's Smiley again. <laughs> smiley. Like, oh, my hey, gosh, that's funny. Hey, it, hey it's me. Oh my gosh, that is hysterical. Um, you, want, you want to watch Godzilla? <laughs> give me Godzilla. Come on, Reed. Sincerely, I don't not like this movie. Don't read that. Okay, all right. Okay. No, I understand. I understand. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, so th- with the exception of the cup of tea story, which I think has something even more fascinating going on with it, all of the stories have to deal with some version of like broken vows. So, you know, the samurai in the first one, he broke his vow to his first wife. Um, the fisherman obviously broke his vow to us, to the spirit that spared his life, even though he is deceived into it, his promise, uh, Hoichi's promise not to tell the truth about the, you know, the sort of spirit assembly, you know, he breaks that vow to them again, accidentally, but so they all deal with this sort of idea of basically broken vows leading to, uh, decay, loss, destruction, but what I really found fascinating about the uh, this final story and how it sort of bleeds into the rest is, so I had mentioned that in the cup of tea story, there's this statement that they make about uh, the idea of a man swallowing another man's soul. But here's the concept that I found really riveting. The co- I'm going to say this exactly how I wrote it down, and then I can unpack it for a second if it's a bit obtuse. The concept of characters in our imagination having a unique life and power of their own is very captivating to me, particularly when we consider the imaginations we build about real people in our lives. And we, when we consider the ways that those real people in our lives, those real flesh and blood individuals, take on a sometimes different, sometimes uh, happier, sometimes more sometimes worse, uh, sometimes completely distorted view inside our own imaginations. Um, so this happens a lot when uh, you are in a relationship with someone, you're in a, a, or you're in a situation where you're with somebody a lot, maybe at work, or you're, you engage with somebody a lot. They begin to take on life in your own imagination where you can imagine what they would say or do in certain scenarios. And particularly when conflict is introduced into those situations, then you begin to imagine ways in which they will react that what is really psychologically interesting is you'll imagine uh, I'll use the subject of marriage because it's the easiest through line you begin to imagine uh, a fight or an argument or a disagreement with your spouse that then you sometimes accidentally hold them accountable for 
like you you imagine a conflict in your mind that never took place. You just mm-hmm. imagine it happened, mm-hmm. and then you're irritable with your spouse when they've done nothing. They've done right. nothing except inside your own mind. And it fascinated me because then when you sort of spread that out through, you have the man who had in black hair who had broken his vow to his wife, but then he keeps seeing her. He keeps envisioning and imagining her. You have the fisherman who sees the vision of his new wife, and it reminds him of this this specter that now lives solely in, in his imagination. And even with Hoichi the Earless and the idea of even though he is blind, like these, this assembly holds a certain place in his imagination only because he's never seen them. Right. And so the ways in which each of these stories kind of begin to deal with the power of characters inside of our imagination uh, really invigorated me. And I don't think that's exclusively, it's certainly not exclusively, but I think that's part of something that I find very compelling about this film is this notion of the distorted ways in which our own imaginations of people, um, real people in our lives, the way that those distortions can often produce um, decay, threat, danger, destruction, um, if we are not attentive. And I think I have said something akin to this on the pod before. But we're, if we're not attentive to recognizing that dividing line between what is our imagination and what is the real and tangible flesh and blood reality that we have before us, then we have skewed narratives that take place in ourselves. You, uh, Nathan, being a very big fan of, uh, or well, and I think your wife most especially is, uh, but of Brene Brown, and, and in that special she talks about the... Uh, that Netflix special she has, The Call to Courage, she talks about the story we tell ourselves. Right. And the idea of people populating narratives that live exclusively in our imagination, but then transmitting themselves into our reactions and assessments of the real is a really captivating and compelling idea to me. Um, So I I submit that to you as one of my major takeaways from from Quaidon. Your thoughts, Mr. Rouse? Hmm. I'm sorry, I fell asleep. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, um, I, I, I'm not going to have a ton of substance in response to what you're saying. I think your takeaway has a lot of intentional thoughtfulness to it mm-hmm. that perhaps another viewing began to pull on some of these threads. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I'm with you. Like, just the ignore my tomfoolery. Um, most people try to, but um, <laughs> the cup of tea sort of notion of of drinking the soul of another person, or or, or kind of kind of that level of disposability we exercise towards mm. others in yeah. in our yeah. minds and in our imagination is is a powerful one and a, and a, a cautionary one. Um, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, I'm not so much at a loss for words and I just don't have a ton to add to exactly what you said. Sure. As much as sure. I just, I agree, Reed. You're a good man. <laughs> well, thank you. Man. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I want to, I actively want to kind of go to the fog meter, but just to, to explode this for, for just a brief moment, like this, the, the tendrils, the ripple effects of, and, and this would be my, my caution to our listeners, my, uh, invitation to your own thoughts, uh, listeners, about the ways in which we, again, y- you, you create 
a person in your mind that is a version of the flesh and blood real human being you may know or that you may know about because it happens in politics, it happens with actors, it happens in all kinds of ways where we will populate our imaginations with and we will assign them intentions, we will assign them conditions, we will assign them scenarios and settings in which they live, which is part of what I love about like the clearly fabricated sort of settings of, of this film. And so like these characters, these populate they populate these these fictionalized places and they travel through it, but we ourselves are the authors of these conditions and settings and the ways in which if we are not careful to recognize those as imaginative, then suddenly we will be convinced everybody's out to get us. We will be convinced uh, of malevolence of people who may not even be considering anything of the things we have assigned to them. We will develop conspiracy theories inside our own relationships. And, and it has the potential, if unchecked and unguarded, to, uh, to really be detrimental and destructive, as so many of these stories wind up being, detrimental and destructive to our own well-being, our wholeness, our happiness, our futures. And and so I, I find it incredibly compelling. And one of the ways, and I will leave it with this, one of the ways that, that we can sort of um, beat back that notion is uh, as uh, maybe adopt a bit of a Kubo, if you will, or a Hoichi the Earless and, you know, sing the song, tell the story, like, you know, make it, uh, something that we bear witness to, uh, opening up about the goings-on in our own imagination so that we can have them challenged by what is real and tangible and active in front of us so that it does not gain too much power only in our own hearts and minds and nowhere else. You're going uh, to so, yeah. be mad at me because I'm not trying to tack on another 20 minutes of conversation here, but you know, sometimes I'll rise to the occasion and you know, your, talk, your talking right now is fueling my brain. Um, it is interesting, despite having three years of Japanese as a foreign language in high school, I don't know that I would identify as having a great comprehension of their kind of lore as a culture. Mm. And it's fascinating. Generally speaking, as a persona, um, Japanese culture is very um, stoic, you know, like... like Sure, sure. Um, you have to... Polite... Um, extremely polite. Um, and it's interesting to me that cup of tea has the elements it has. And do you remember one of the entire threads of Kubo is about storytelling, about the stories we tell ourselves and about the ability to live into an ending. Mm, um, yeah, and it's just, it's yeah. just interesting to me, interesting to me, kind of the correlative aspects of, what's present in some of these quite on stories and that one, sure, which sure. You know, again, I, I don't know enough about the origins of the film Kubo, but I imagine there was a lot, it was rooted in some pretty, you know, kind of sure, cu- cult, sure. cult, cultural touch points. Anyway, just interesting correlation there. Yeah. And, um, and, for, and I think for the, yeah, that, a lot to ponder there um, uh, for the sake, for the sake of time, I think I would just, uh, we'll, we'll pivot into the fog meter, but I think your, your observations of, the cultural significance of this can't be removed from a film like this. You know, we, uh, we, we've talked a lot in this particular series and we'll, you know, close it down with next week. But, 
uh, part of why we did this series is to kind of look beyond our front door and look at look into windows of places that we will not be able to fully understand because it's not where we come from. Um, and uh, and I think that's something that we can respect and admire greatly about films like this and about the ones that we've covered and and uh, and just take a pause and be more meditative uh, in quite esque fashion, if you will, about some of these thoughts and considerations. So um, with that having been said, you want you want to close us down and go into the fog meter? Let's do it. So yes, every episode, every film we discuss, rather, um, we do submit to the rigors of the fog meter that of. Uh, two specific metrics, one being fear, how scary a thing is, and God, or how substantive the piece of work is. Um, on a scale of, um, I don't know if it's 0 to 10 or 1 to 10, you know, I guess it's going to change depending on the conversation. But for Quaidon, I am going to, on the fear aspect, land at a 3. Um, All right. I do... I think the stories being told are compelling stories with once you kind of engage the aspects of them, some elements of kind of fearful uh, responses to negligent action type thing. Mm, Um, But as a film, it's not going to kind of scare you or terrify you. Right, 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 right. Um, I'm with you on that. There are some shots that I find just so sort of haunting, maybe not nightmarish, but uh, but really, you know, compelling visually. I'm going to go with a six for for the fear measurement. Um, for the God measurement or the substance within the film, I think the stories in their simplicity are uh, sort of deceptively deep, um, but they don't. They're, they're also, I think it, it would be false for me to say that they're after anything terribly complex they are meant to be archetypal ghost stories that's where they come from that's what they are um so i'm going to give it a seven for the god meter it's so funny to me i thought on both of those you were prepping for hedging and then you land at relatively strong ratings there um Uh (laughs) i am i'll just lead and then unpack i'm gonna go with a five so i i I think there is there are things there i think context of how you consume this film matters deeply to Mm, your ability to kind of really engage it um and so honestly my five is a little bit of a hedge just in the sense that i do think there are things there that i'm just not i wasn't in the viewing of it equipped to kind of dial in on and i i it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of these tales have deeper cultural resonance than sure their my ability to kind of apprehend them so. Well, they were, uh, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, they were adapted from traditional Japanese ghost stories. There yeah, was a collection, yeah, um, and uh, there was a collection, and I forget the author's name, uh, but it was a collection from like the early 1900s of ghost stories that were that were adapted for it. So yeah, that, that wouldn't surprise me either. That brings us to a 5.25 on the fog meter for Kwaidon. Um And so... I'll give you some moment to think about it. I obviously would highly recommend the film with the qualifier that it does require patience and it requires um, attentiveness and a wavelength of for a slow meditative film that is lengthy. Um, I would highly recommend it for cinephiles, for people who appreciate longer, more deliberately paced films like that. But what say you, Mr. Nathan Ross? Um, I think if you are single or retired or have no children <laughs> or have have no children 
Um, I absolutely would recommend this. And even to people in those, not in those categories, I would still, I would still, you know, measuredly recommend just from the standpoint of the amount of context required. And, and I say this sincerely, like, this is not me being jokey. Like, sure. sure. I, I do kind of wish I'd had the foresight, although in your defense, if you'd even told me a month ago to do it this way, it's possible it would have gone in one earless hole and out the other one. So I could still, <laughs> I would still be able to hear it. Uh, just not <laughs> right, you know, right, kind of that's true. with my actual ears. Um, I wish I had had the foresight to just kind of consume them individually as stories over time, right, as opposed right, to trying right, right, right. to trying to work it through in a 24 hour period. Sure. Sure. All right. Well, that puts quite on in the books, the f- penultimate episode of phase one of hashtag speaking in tongues next week. If you've been following along with the Netflix original series, season one of dark, then check out episodes nine and 10 for our full episode on that. That's next exciting. week. Nathan, thank you so much for enduring the three hours and the four <laughs> stories of Quiet Thank you for indulging me in this one of my very favorite films. Sure, um, man. And, uh, and thank you listeners for hanging with us either for the conversation or for the film or both. Uh, we hope you enjoyed either or both of those and we will see you next week. Sayonara. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast. Go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed by Lee Wright and Reed Lackey. Our podcast art was crafted by Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com. Merchandise for the show can be found at tpublic.com. Just search The Fear of God Podcast, all one word. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody.